Well, welcome again. It is good to be back with you. I feel like I need a welcome. I feel like a stranger around here. It's been a couple of weeks. I know, right? That's not what, that is not what I was fishing for, but it is, it's good to be back. Um, the last couple of weeks, Melanie and I uh, had the opportunity. Two weeks ago, we were in Indianapolis, Indiana for our general assembly with the Church of the Nazarene. And uh, what that means is uh, the Church of the Nazarene is in 165 world areas. And so there was about a thousand delegates from all of those world areas gathering together to worship and to do some business about the global church. Uh, and what a blessing it was. I'm um, thank you for the privilege you gave me to be able to go and represent our church and our district as one of the delegates. And it was, it was just an amazing opportunity. One of the things that happened there, pull this picture up. I had the chance to meet with Dennis, who is on the right in the blue shirt. Uh, Dennis is uh, from Hawaii, and uh, he is leading a ministry. They live in a place with plentiful clean water, and they wanted to be able to provide clean water to people in Africa who didn't have that. And so uh, he leads a ministry uh, that digs wells in Africa. Well, at Christmas, when we raised $10,000 to go to clean water efforts, we sent it to Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. They sent it to Dennis and his organization because he's a Nazarene and his church leads this ministry. Um, and Dennis was able to send it to Zambia. And so while I was at General Assembly, uh, Dennis and I have been in contact for quite a bit. I was able to meet with Dennis and meet with the coordinator from Zambia who's actually going to receive those funds and be able to dig a well. And so in the coming months, we're going to be able to see pictures of the community where that well is dug. And I'm just, it was, it was just an amazing reminder of the global impact that we have as a local church. And so uh, the giving, uh, when, when we give, it doesn't just impact here in this community. It just doesn't impact this region uh, but our giving went to Hawaii that then got sent to Zambia, and I was able to sit down and meet with both of those people. And I was just, what a blessing it is to be a part of a global church, uh, that we're not just doing our thing here in Rockledge, but we're a part of something bigger. And it was just such a blessing. Um, and then last week, yeah, no, that's, that's worth celebrating. Uh, and then last week, uh, we were driving home and was able to spend uh, Father's Day with my dad in Nashville, and uh, it was just a, it was a blessing to be gone. But I will say, it's, it's good to go away sometimes, but it's even better to come home, and what a blessing it's been uh, to worship with you again this morning. We've missed being here, we've missed being with our church family, and we love you guys, and we're thankful to be here. If you're a guest with us, this is your first time here today. Uh, we're thankful that you're here. If you're watching online for the first time, uh, we're glad that you're connecting with us. And uh, just pray that God has something for all of us this morning. Uh, we started about four weeks ago this series, Cinderella Stories. And we're looking at stories in the Bible that are these amazing stories of how God uses um, people that you just wouldn't expect to do amazing things. They're stories of how he turns the tables and, and, and does the unexpected in lives, and we're discovering how he wants to do that in our lives in this series. And so we started off looking at Ehud, this uh, left-handed judge, and just how God used this unlikely hero. And then we looked at King David, who started as a shepherd and went to king. And 
Then last week, uh, you heard a video message from Dr. David Busick, and uh, we were reminded that as Nazarenes, and, and I will just say as the capital C church, as the body of Christ, we are called to minister to people who are from Nazareth, the least and the lowly and the broken and the marginalized, people that have baggage in their lives, people who aren't perfect. The church is called to minister to those people. And so if you're here today, if you're watching online and you're like, hey, that's me, well, welcome home. Uh, because this is who we are called to be as a church who reaches and cares and loves for all people and especially those that are hurting, especially those that are needing just a, a special touch of, of the love of God in their lives. And so today we're going to look at this story. If, if there was one story when I was thinking about this Cinderella story series, if there's, there's one biblical story that is like, this is it, it's the story of Esther. I mean, Esther goes from orphan to queen. I mean, she goes from uh, just absolute nothing to being the second most powerful person uh, in the Persian Empire. And so if you have your Bibles, take them out. So we are going to look together at the entire book of Esther today. And I know you're like, the entire book, Pastor Brad? Yes, the entire book. I'm going to talk fast. You're going to have to listen fast. It's been two weeks, so I got a lot to say. Um, I got a, got a lot to cover. So um, we're going to dive in. Uh, and just as you're turning in your Bibles or getting your phones out and going to you version on your phones, um, the setting of this is in Persia. The capital city is Susa. It's about 1500 BC. And uh, we find ourselves there in Persia because the people of God and their disobedience have found themselves in exile once that uh, they're they're separated from their homeland, they're in Persia, they're under the thumb and under the power of another kingdom. And uh, so here we are as they look for hope in a place far from home. And Esther chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, picks up and says this. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all the nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as all the princes and nobles of the provinces, and the celebration lasted 180 days. A tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were in the fortress of Susa. And it lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on mosaic pavement of porphyry marble and mother of pearl and other costly stones. And drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs. And there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity and by edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking 
For the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. Let me just pause right here. So the first thing we learn is that there's this king. His name is King Xerxes. This is the same King Xerxes that fought the famed battle against the Spartan 300. This king is immensely powerful. This king is immensely wealthy. His kingdom is huge. But there's something that you need to know about this king. He's not a good guy, all right? He's not a good guy. And, and you're going to discover as we go through this story that this king is, is really not, he's not only not a, a good guy, he's just a, in some ways a terrible person. And yet, God uses even him in this story. There's, there's a, a lot that we see about him. We, we know that he's arrogant, he's pompous, he thinks the world revolves around himself. And, and part of the reason we know that is because at the very beginning of the story, we see that he throws a party, and it lasts 180 days. Now, some of you did the math real quick in your head. That's a six-month dinner party, all right? Um, so I don't know when the last time your boss invited you over and said, hey, we're going to have a little party for, like, you know, the employees, and, you know, we're going to, and you're like, well, hey, that's awesome. You know, when does it start? Well, it's going to start in mid-July, and it's going to go through December, right? You know, like, you know, it's that kind of a dinner party. It's, it's just crazy, the, the amount of wealth and opulence, and this is all just to show how much he has and what a big deal he is. And when this is over, he throws another seven-day party for everybody, not just kind of the leaders, but for everybody in the city. And according to verse 8, no limits were placed on the drinking. Now, do you know what happens when you take common people who don't have a lot of access to alcohol um, and you allow them unlimited drinking for seven days? Um, he basically turned his palace into a drunken party uh, for these seven days. And, and while the king is with all the men having this drunken party for these seven days, all the women are with Queen Vashti, and they're having their own party that's going on. And it says in Esther chapter 1, verse 10, On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine. So this, yeah, that, that's just a nice way for the Bible to say he was drunk. All right, he was, he, was, he was not thinking clearly. He told his seven eunuchs who attended him, and then names them all in verse 11, picks up, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. Now let me just pause right here and say this. Um, he's, he's been drinking with his buddies for seven days, right? They're... They're just drinking, 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 and he says, hey, let me bring my wife out to show her to you. Now, do you think that he wanted her to play her harp and say, listen how talented she is, guys. Isn't she amazing? Do you think that he wanted to show them how smart she was um, and say, look, she's going to work some calculus equations for us, and she's going to blow your mind? I mean, she's just so intelligent. No, that's not what it says. It goes on, and it says, he wanted the nobles and all the men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. He just wanted to bring out his trophy wife and say, look how good she looks. And, and this is kind of what he wanted. Now, so he sends off for her, and Queen Vashti 
says, let me think about this. Now, remember, she's with all the women, and it doesn't tell us this, but we can assume that she and all the women have been doing their fair share of drinking as well in this seven days. And she says, let me think about this. Do I want to go parade myself in front of all these men uh, in the state that they're in? And, and she's probably not thinking too clearly herself, maybe because of what she's been drinking. And she says, no, I don't want to come. I'm, I'm not interested in this invite. And, you know, of course, the king, when he finds out that she's not willing to come, he says, oh, yeah, what was I thinking? I'm so insensitive. You know, dear, yeah, why, you know, you're right. I mean, that, that was rude of me. Of course you don't want to come. No, that's not, a, that's not how he responds at all. Um, he, he is enraged at this. Um, he is so upset. He's furious. He goes to his, goes to his uh, counselors and he says, hey, what do I do about my wife who won't listen to her husband, who, who basically won't do what I've asked her to do. And the, the counselors say, well, listen, you know, this is what we think you should do. And in verse 19, it picks up, if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. And it should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes, and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. And when this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. I love this. So all these guys, their wives are at the party with Queen Vashti, and they're like, listen, guys, like, what are we going to do? If the queen won't listen to the king, we got no hope when we get home tonight. Um, like, you know, we're, we're never going to be back in charge of our house. So, king, you got to set this straight so that we can make a show of this. It goes on to verse 21, says, The king and his nobles thought this made good sense, so he followed the council. So he banishes Queen Vashti, and a couple days later, he sobers up. And he goes, what have I done? What have I done? Now, this is a sidebar on this story. It has nothing to do with the book of Esther, but I will just say there's a whole lot of drinking in this book. If you haven't read the book of Esther lately, I, I encourage you this week to go and read it. Uh, or if you have you version, listen to it. Uh, I actually listened to it in several different translations uh, this week, and so it's, it's a great story to listen to. Um, but you're going to notice a whole lot of drinking a whole lot of parties, and although the Bible never says this, um, this is just one more of those stories in the Bible that, that I just tell people all the time. Um, you know, nowhere in the Bible does it say, thou shalt not drink. It's just not in there. You won't find it. Um, but there's a whole lot of bad stories that come about when people indulge too much and, and people use alcohol. And this is just one of those. He sobers up a couple days later and he goes, man, I've made a mistake. I'm a king and now I don't have a queen. What am I going to do? And so he asks his buddies, what do you think I should do? And you know what his buddy said to him? His buddy said, I think you should have a Miss Medes and Persia beauty contest, and you should have all of the 127 provinces send their best-looking lady and have a beauty contest, and the winner will become king. Now, I know for us today, we're like, 
We hear something like that, we just think, man, is it possible that there was a time in history when people were so shallow and so barbaric that they would gauge a woman's value on her looks? I mean, like, you know, we're so far beyond that. Um, This is what's going on. He's like, hey, he's looking for the best looking woman, and they have a beauty contest. He says, this sounds like good counsel, and this is where Esther comes into the story. Esther is a Jewish girl. She's orphaned. Her parents have died when she was young, and she was raised and brought up by her older cousin named Mordecai. And this is what we know about Esther. We know she's Jewish. We know she's an orphan. And in chapter 2, verse 7, we know this, that she's very beautiful, that she's lovely, that she is a head turner. So it's no surprise that she makes it through the preliminary rounds of the Miss Meads and Persia beauty contest. And she kind of makes it to the finals. And uh, she is getting ready to be selected to be one of the 127 that gets a chance to go before the king for this kind of first date to see who he likes the best. Now, um, let me just pause here and say this. Ladies, I need a little bit of participation and cooperation from you, all right? So um, I want you to think back, if you will, to a time when you wanted to go on a date with a guy. I mean, it was maybe your first date, and maybe it's your husband now, or maybe it was in high school or college, and, and it was just, you were so excited to go on this first date, and, and you, I mean, you spent time doing your hair and your makeup and picking out the clothes you were going to wear. Let me, let me just, in a moment of honesty, how many of you would say there's been a time in your life at least once where you spent at least an hour getting ready for a date? All right, okay, all right. How many of you would say there was a time where you spent longer getting ready for a date than the date itself? All right. <laughs> How many of you had more fun getting ready for the date than you did on the date? (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is what's crazy about this story. Esther, Esther actually spends 12 months getting ready for this first date beauty treatments and all kinds of preparation. Uh, And finally, after 12 months of getting ready for the date, Uh, she goes on this first date with the king. And and the Bible tells us that uh, King Xerxes was smitten, that he thought she was the most beautiful and that she was the best of all of the 127. And and he fell in love with her and he makes her queen. So Esther the orphan becomes queen of Persia. I mean, if that's not a Cinderella story, what is? But it doesn't end there because it picks back up in chapter 3. And we read this in chapter 3, uh, verses 1 and 2. Some time later. Now, we don't know how long that is, but Esther's now queen, and she's been queen for some time. And some time later, after she's queen, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, over all of the nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All of the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. For so the king had commanded, but Mordecai 
refused to bow down or show him respect. Now, remember, Mordecai is Esther's guardian. And sometime uh, in this sometime, he has become uh, someone of importance. He's somewhat of uh, a court official of sorts because he's at the gates. Uh, and he just refuses to bow down to Haman. He refuses to give him the respect that Haman says, hey, I deserve, and the king has mandated. And uh, earlier um, in this story, we're told that while Mordecai is serving in his duties at the gate, he at one point hears a couple of eunuchs who are guards over the door of the king uh, who are plotting the murder of King Xerxes. And he then tells Queen Esther... Queen Esther then tells the king, they discovered that the plot was true, they, they kill these guys that were trying to assassinate the king, and Mordecai gets credit. Now, nothing's ever done, it's just kind of forgotten, but it's written down uh, in the story, and, uh, and it kind of moves back on. It, chapter 3, verses 5 through 6 is this, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So Haman says, listen, you know, everything would be pretty good in my life if it wasn't for this guy, Mordecai. And I've, I've got to have him killed, but it's not good enough for him to kill just Mordecai. He wants to kill all of the Jews. So he goes before the king and he shares a plan with the king. And he says, listen, king, there is a group of people who are uh, insignificant, but they're very wealthy. And this group of people, they, they keep themselves separate. They, they follow their own laws. Their laws are different. And more importantly, king, they refuse to follow some of your laws and your decrees that you put out there. And king, this is just not okay. And I tell you what, I'm willing to fund the operation and I will put my money in to make this happen, but I would like to see us kill all of them in your entire empire. This gives you just a little bit of a clue of who Xerxes is. He doesn't ask very many questions. He doesn't say, who are these people? He doesn't try to find out a little bit more. He just says, okay, kill them all. Just like that with no hesitation uh, to kill all the men, women, and children uh, of this entire group of people. He just says, yeah, sure, you're going to fund it? Go for it. Let's do it. And chapter 4, verse 1 through 2 picks up. It says, when Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. And he went as far as the gate of the palace for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. And so um, this, the, the king allows Haman to write this up, send it out to all 127 provinces, and the date was set for about a year later when all of the Jews would be killed by the people and that they could plunder anything that they had. And, and so Mordecai is just grieving this terrible thing. Uh, but it's not just a personal grief, it's almost a, a political act that he does. This is kind of the equivalent of going to the White House lawn and picketing at the White House lawn. He, he sits at this gate in this 
uh, in, his, uh, in his ashes, and he just, he wails and he mourns, and it's a way of saying, hey, this is a terrible thing. So it's a very brave thing that Mordecai does in doing this, uh, but he also noticed that he doesn't have the political power to go before the king and do anything about this. And he realizes the only person that does is Esther, the queen. And so he sends word to Esther that, hey, you've got to do something about this. You've got to talk to the king about this. And she says, hey, I can't do that. And she's got some pretty good reasons why she says, There's, I just can't. I mean, hey, I appreciate that this is not a good situation, but I cannot go before the king. In chapter 4, verse 11, she says this, all the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. She knows that she's not an exception to the king's rules because she remembers Vashti. Remember Vashti? Remember how that worked out for her? Not so good, right? So the king has made a law. The king has said, hey, nobody can come before the king unless I extend my gold scepter to them. And she said, I just can't do that. And then she says, and you know what? I'm not so sure he likes me as much as he once did. I'm not so sure that I have as much favor with him as I once did because it's been 30 days since he's called for me. Now, again, remember, Xerxes is not a, a good man, all right? He's, he's not a faithful husband. He has a, at least 127 other women in his harem. And what she's saying is, the king hasn't called for me in 30 days, so I'm thinking that he's not as interested in me as he once was. And I've got good evidence because he hasn't called for me that it might not go so well for me if I show up to the inner court without being asked for. And so Mordecai could have said, you know what, I didn't know all that, Esther. You're right. That's it's probably, we'll have to come up with a plan B. But that's not what he said. He says to her, listen, God has placed you here at this moment, and you have got to do something about this. And so in verse uh, 12, he says this. So the, the word comes back to Mordecai, and Mordecai sent his reply to Esther, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. And who knows? if perhaps you are made queen for just such a time as this. So Mordecai is saying, listen, I know you didn't ask for this. I know this wasn't your plan, but God has put you here. God has designed this. God, God has been at work leading you to this place and this moment. And how you respond to this will make all of the difference. And it's now time for you to do something, to stand up for justice and, and to make a difference. And so she says, listen, I, I need you to pray and fast for three days. And, and so it picks up at verse uh, 16. She says, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or night, for, for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go and see the king. And I love this line. If I must die, I must die. 
Maybe the, the bravery to be able to just say, hey, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do what I'm called to do, and we'll just see what comes of this. So she prays, she fasts for three days, then she puts on her royal robes, and she goes into the king's quarters uninvited. And, and I, love, I love this. The king kind of sees her, and he, he realizes he didn't call for her. And the king's in this moment of, what do I do? And, and the king extends his golden scepter to her and says to his wife, I'm not going to kill you today. And she says, thank you, O king. I mean, just the, the craziness of the story. And you know, so it's like, hey, oh, I appreciate that. You know? um, and verse uh, 1 of chapter 5 picks up. It says, then the king asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you even if it's half the kingdom. Now, what you need to know is he didn't mean that, all right? Um, he's, he's not that generous of a guy. I know we've seen him throw some parties, and, you know, he, like, says, hey, drink as much as you want to drink, but he's not giving away half of his kingdom. He's not that guy. If she would have said, well, you know, I was thinking Italy and North Africa are really nice around this time of the year, and I was kind of hoping you would, like, let me have all the rulership of those— that would not have gone well for her, okay? He wasn't really trying to give away up to half of his kingdom. What he was trying to say is, hey, I'm in a pretty good mood today. Anything I can do for you, honey? Um, you know, like I've already decided not to kill you. And now, is there anything else I can do for you uh, to help you out? And she's smart enough to know she can't ask for too much at that moment. So what she does is she says, listen, I just wanted to throw a party for you. I wanted to have a feast, a banquet, and I wanted to do it in your name, and I just wanted you to invite, since you're the, the man that I'm throwing the party for, I thought you would be a great person to have at the party, and I was hoping you would come, and if you want, you can invite Haman to join you. Now, the king says, hey, listen, I like parties. Um, I, I'm all for banquet, and I love parties that are in my name. That's even better. I'm there. I'll make it, and sure, we'll invite Haman and Haman can come along for the party. So they have this first party. And at the party, uh, the king says, hey, what is it that you want, my queen? And she says, what I, what I really want is for you to come back again tomorrow night. And, and we're going to have another party. And at that party, I'll tell you what I want. Uh, but but I, w would you just be willing to come back again tomorrow night? And so that kind of ends the party. They all go home. The king goes home. Haman goes home. Again, they've been drinking at this first gathering, and, and, and Haman's feeling pretty good about himself leaving this first party. And on his way out of the city gates, he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai, once again, will not bow down to him. And it just enrages Haman. He goes home, and he's telling his wife, he's telling all of his friends just what a big shot he is. I mean, he's like, listen, I got all of this. I got so much money. I, got... I was invited to a party with just the king and the queen. I mean, I'm somebody. But there's this guy, Mordecai. I mean, I just can't even enjoy any of this because there's this guy, Mordecai, and he's just driving me nuts. And his wife, Haman's wife, says, well, I have an idea, honey. Why don't you just build a 75-foot pole and impale him on it, um, and then you'll feel better. And Haman says, sweetheart, this is why I married you. <laughs> you, you. 
you have so many good ideas. Like, like every man whose wife tells him the good ideas and then he runs with it and then it works out really well. Like he's like, this is why I married you. This is not a woman you want to mess with. But So he does. He goes and he immediately has his people start building an eight-story almost pole to impale Mordecai on. And he's so excited about his impaling pole that he goes straight to the king that night. Now, this is before the second party. And he's like going to ask for permission to impale Mordecai on this pole. But that same night, the king was having a hard time going to sleep. Now, probably, you know, I don't know. Do you remember like at Christmas time on Christmas Eve, how hard it was for you to go to sleep? Do you remember that? So this is, this is what I imagine. I imagine the king is just so excited, right? He's like, tomorrow I'm going to find out what it is that the queen wants. This is like so exciting. He can't go to sleep. He's laying in bed, tossing and turning, and he asks for his people to come and read him a bedtime story. Um, so they read him from the Chronicles of the King, and they start reading to him a story. And I don't, you know, maybe the best way to put yourself to sleep is a story about yourself. I don't know. But um, so he's like, read to me a story about the Chronicles of the King. And so they read to him this story. They open it up and they start telling him the story about how Mordecai had saved him from this assassination attempt. And he hears this story and he's like, hey, what did we ever do to honor Mordecai for this? And his people are like, nothing, O king. And they were thinking, you never do that because it's all about you and you never look, they, they probably had a lot, of, you know, they had a lot of that stuff going on in their heads. But they're like, nothing, king. And he says, well, we ought to do something. Right about that moment, Haman comes in to ask to impale Mordecai on this pole. And the king, looking for some advice on how to honor someone, says, hey, is anybody in the outer court? Why don't we ask? And they say, yeah, you know what? Haman is here. He says, bring Haman in. I want to ask his advice on who I should honor. And in chapter 6, verses 69, it says this. So Haman came in, and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Now, you got to know Haman's thinking, he's talking about me, right? Who else would he want to, you know, who else would we want to honor? Ch verse 7 says, so he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone... He should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes, and led through the city square on the king's horse, and have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor." And the king says, that's a great idea, Haman. Listen, I forgot to tell you, the name of the guy that I want to honor is Mordecai. You can just picture like all the blood leaving Haman's face. Uh, and so Haman, I mean, he just can't even talk. He's humiliated. But he leads Mordecai through the city on the horse. He does everything he's supposed to do. And he goes home to his wife and he just says, I, I just can't believe what I've had to do. And his wife is like, yeah, this is not going well for you. Uh, this, this, is, yeah, I don't, I, this is just a terrible situation. And they're all wondering, how could this possibly get worse? And right then, the king's eunuchs show up to say, hey, it's time to come to Queen Esther's party. It's about to get a lot worse for Haman. Spoiler alert. Um, so they go to the second party. They're eating, they're drinking, and... Somewhere in here, the king just says, hey, queen, 
tell me, what is it? I've been, I couldn't even sleep last night. I was so excited. What is it that you want? What, what is the one thing that you want me to do? And she says, I just want you to save my life. Because at this point, he doesn't know that she's Jewish. She's hidden her identity all this time. She says, I, I want you to save my life because there's someone who's trying to kill me, and not just me, but kill my family and all my people. And, and King, I, I want you to spare me. And if we were being sold into slavery, I wouldn't even bother you. It wouldn't even be worth wasting your time. But, but because they want to kill us all, I'm asking that you would do something. And King Xerxes says, who would do this? Who would dare threaten my queen? Who would dare threaten her family? And she says, he's the man, right? And she points right at Haman. Um, and, you know, of course, Haman at this point's like, yeah, this is a bad day. This, this day is just, it went from bad to worse really quickly. Um, the king is enraged. If you haven't picked up in the story up to this point, he's got a real hot head. He, he has a, a temper uh, like nothing, and he just storms out. He's so angry, and Haman kind of throws himself at Esther, and he's begging uh, that, that she would spare him, and right about then, the king comes back in, and he just sees Haman throwing himself at the queen, and he says, would you attack my queen even here in my palace? And at that point, it's done for Haman. And one of the officials in chapter 7, verse 9 through 10, says this, one of the king's eunuchs said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole. Now, I, could, I could just picture the guy like really excited. Like, hey, I, I got something, King. I got to. Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. I love that. Um, then impale him, Haman, on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on a pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. So, whew, it's not over yet, though. All right, it's not over yet, because now the king needs a chief of staff. Now, like, he's taken the signet ring from Haman. He's like, oh, now who's going to run my empire while I have all my parties, you know? It's like, I got banquets to go to. Um, so who's going to run this joint? Um, and he asked the queen, because he's at, you know, hey, well, who do you think should be in charge? And she says, well, I don't know anybody who's more qualified than Mordecai. I mean, he's already saved you from one assassination attempt. Don't you think you'd want somebody like that to, to be in charge? And so he says, that sounds good. And he grants over all of the property to Esther to do with his, as she wants, and he makes Mordecai the highest official in the kingdom. And it says this, and then, then Esther says, but hey, wait, there's one more thing, king. What about this whole, like, decree that all of my people are being killed? What are we going to do about that? And this is what it says in Esther 8, chapter 7 through 8. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I have given Esther the property of Haman, and he has been impaled on a pole because he tried to destroy the Jews. Now go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want, and seal it with the king's signet ring. I, I love this. So this is kind of the end of the story. Now, there's a whole lot more. You'll have to read it on your own, okay? Um, uh, some of you are like, well, I got to know more. Go read it. It's a great story. Um, and, um, but here's what I love about this. Esther, this orphan girl, finds herself here in the midst of the Persian Empire 
with Mordecai writing legislation to all 127 provinces representing the most powerful person in the world. How does all that happen? It only happens because God is at work moving behind the scenes. And it's, it's because Mordecai, who was this uh, immensely uh, challenging leader, says to a young leader, hey, God's called you to do something more than you're doing. He, he calls her up to something more. He says, listen, I, I know you're in this place, and I know you're in this spot, and God has put you here for a reason, and I don't want you to miss that. And, and you've got Esther, who's this amazing, brave young woman who finds herself in a place that, that she didn't really plan to be in, but there she was, and she says, even if I die, I will stand before the king. I'll, I'll do what I need to do. I, I'll, I'll step in, and I'll make a difference. And I'll step in and I'll speak for those people who have no power to speak. I'll be the voice that would be willing to speak up. And what I love about this whole book, and this is a piece that we haven't even mentioned up to now, the name of God, this is the only book of the Bible where the name of God or Yahweh is not mentioned one time. So if you go through and you read Esther, um, God's name is never mentioned in the book, and that's a very intentional reason. It's because although he is not out in front being named, you see him moving behind the scenes in so many ways. You can't read this story without seeing God's hand moving in so many ways, and, and one of the things that the book of Esther teaches us is that even when we don't see God overtly even when we can't sense God, even though we, we would say, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't really feel God, I don't sense God, I, I'm not sure God's moving, the, the, the story tells us God is at work working even when you don't see it. God is at work moving even when you uh, don't know that he's doing this. And, and Esther finds herself in a place that is God-ordained and God-blessed, and, and he has something for her to do in a, in a very special moment in time. And it's because she's willing to say yes that the entire Jewish nation was saved at this place. So God is directing her steps. Now, this is Esther's story, okay? But here's what I want to ask us as we close this morning. What about your story? Where is God working behind the scenes to orchestrate and lead you to where you are right now? And it's not that God, everything that has happened to you, God did. I'm not saying that. There, there were some terrible things that happened in Esther's life that God had nothing to do with. We live in a sinful world where people abuse their powers, and, and sometimes you just find yourself, but, but the Bible tells us that God can take even the worst circumstance, and he can make something good of it. And so what are the things that God has been doing in your life? And I, I love this story because this story teaches us God can show up in very unlikely places. God can show up in Persia where there is no temple, right? God can show up in king's bedrooms, and he can show up in orphans' homes. And God can show up in mangers, and God can show up on crosses, God can show up in, in places that we wouldn't expect him to show up. God can show up in our neighborhoods. He can show up in our work cubicles. He can show up in community playgrounds as we gift it uh, to our community and as we are the hands and feet of Jesus. 
Some of you were like, what's going on with the fireworks out there? God can show up at firework tents. I'm telling you, God can show up as people buy fireworks and support teenagers, and we just simply give an invite to church. There are all kinds of ways and spaces and places that God can show up if we'll allow him to. And the question is, is will we be willing to let him use us in those places? And you can, you can know this, um, no matter how many wrong turns you've taken, no matter how many mistakes you've made, no matter how much baggage you're carrying, God has a purpose for your life. He has a use for you. And he wants you to not only be forgiven and redeemed, but he says, I have a plan for you. I actually want to use you to make a difference where you are. And the only question is, is will we allow him to use us? Esther teaches us even in a book where God's name is never overtly mentioned, that if we will be willing to say, yes, Lord, you can use me. Yes, Lord, I'll be obedient. Then God will move in mighty ways in our life. And so I, I want to pray with us, and uh, I want to give you just a couple of opportunities to respond to this message. And so if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes. There, there might be some of you who are here today, and it could be that you've never said yes to Jesus in your life, that, that maybe, there's, maybe there's some things in your past, maybe there's some things that have held you back from this, but you're here today, you're watching online, and you've never said, Lord, I'm willing to allow you to come into my life, to forgive me of my sins, to be Lord and if that's you, I just want to give you the opportunity to do that this morning. It, it begins there. It really starts by just saying, God, you can have access to my life and my heart. So if that's you, I just want to invite you to pray this prayer. Just say, Jesus, will you forgive me of my sins? As I look at this story in Esther, and I see you used people that were imperfect. Would you be willing to use me? Would you come into my life? Would you forgive the wrong turns that I've made and the times that I've hurt you and I've hurt other people around me? Would you forgive me? Would you give me a fresh start this morning? Would you not just work in my life, but would you somehow find it possible to use me to make a difference for you in this world? Thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness. Thank you for a fresh start today. Thank you for hope for a better tomorrow. There might be others of you that you prayed that prayer a long time ago, but you need to say yes to something today. And you need to know that God's calling you to something, and I, I don't know what that is, but I do know that we need to just say, Lord, speak, your people are listening. Speak to us, Lord. Give us direction. Give us clarity. Help us to know how you want to use us to reach a hurting and broken world all around us. The people who are in our neighborhoods and in our community, the people who we run into at Publix and we run into at different places, Lord, help, help us to have eyes that would see hurting people. Help us to be willing to be a church and to be someone as an individual who would just say yes to you no matter what. So God, I give you permission to use me this week. I give you permission to open my eyes to the needs that are around me and help me to 
figure out how it is that you want me to make a difference in our community and world. I say yes to you, Lord. Speak. Help me to hear what it is you want me to do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.